What does it take to win? What does it take to be a winner? My name is Wesley Donahue, and I'm here to answer those questions. And today, I am joined by Doug Stafford. Doug is one of the nation's best-known GOP political consultants. He's senior advisor for Senator Rand Paul and numerous congressmen and women. This past cycle, he and I worked together on Nancy Mace's big win in South Carolina. Here he has quite the crazy story from Rand Paul's first win in 2010. You know, it's never a uh, slow day. Like two seconds before we jump on the Zoom, a judge hands down a decision that South Carolina Congressional District 1 has to be redrawn. And that's important for us because you and I yeah. both just teamed up to win that race. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, twice now. And and they, what, what did they say? Why did they? Why did they say it had to be redrawn? Do you, do you did you look at it? Yeah, race, race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, All that right. the primary driver for the reason the district was drawn that way is race. So let me I, I, this this podcast is for you to tell a story, but let me tell you a story mm-hmm. uh, first. Um, Ten years ago, I headed up redistricting for the Republicans in South Carolina, okay. and it was one of the absolute worst experiences of my entire <laughs> career. I'm shocked. Took, they, well, they came to me. They're like, Wesley, you are like the tech savvy Republican and you understand the lines and politics. So we want you to be the guy that sit in front of the computer all day with all these politicians and draw the lines. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to make so many friends from this. And the truth is all you do is piss off every single person that you talk to. Right. Because they want their lines drawn exactly the way you want them. They want them. And if you change anything at all, which you have to do to make the other senator happy. Right. So I, I did the state Senate lines and the congressional lines. But what I learned is white Republicans or Republicans and black Democrats team up on redistricting. And it's the case. That's the interesting part of a decision like this, right? Yeah, because what it, it's. The black Democrats are actually trying to draw in, and Jim Clyburn did this. Clyburn did this one when, when ten years ago, so I know he did it again. They're the ones trying to. He's the one trying to draw more African American neighborhoods into his district, but the Republicans didn't get blamed for trying to draw the the black voters out when it was actually Clyburn gets the first pick of the way his district looks. And what? And if you look at the South Carolina State Senate, for example. Uh, the Democratic caucus has gotten blacker and blacker and white Democrats are going extinct because the black Democrats are trying to pack in more African-Americans so white Democrats can't beat them in primaries. But the Republicans get the blame for it. That's exactly what I believe has happened here in South Carolina. Well, if you go back in terms of a court being involved in it, the courts used to mandate what they're mandating against today. The courts mm-hmm. were, were the courts tried to mandate that there be majority minority districts in order to ensure a certain level of representation among minority candidates. And I'm not, neither one of them are right. Obviously it should be just, you know, we draw the lines, we draw the lines and whoever gets elected gets elected, but yeah, courts got involved in the first place in one direction. And now they seem mm-hmm. like they want to get involved in another direct in the complete opposite direction right now. It's hard to make sense of that. If you're drawing lines. Yep. Yep. Well, um, I will never do this again because the a number of hours that I had to sit in um, deposition with DOJ oh, God. was, was the, <laughs> just explaining everything. And I just remember just like, I don't recall. I don't recall. I mean, that's all I said because I, I couldn't you probably remember. Didn't. <laughs> I, yeah, because, you know, you're sitting in there with all these senators and then, then you meet with like the congressman and I'm like, dude, this took me months and months. I don't remember this conversation. 
I don't remember where I, I talked that, about it with my wife last night. Exactly. I I that one remember, time with like a, it was like an FEC complaint or something years ago. And it was it was complete bullshit complaint. But we're sitting there and they're asking questions and and it was about a presidential campaign. So you're like, do you have any idea what kind of coma I've been in since I finished a presidential <laughs> campaign? Right. Or what kind of crap was happening during it? And you don't want to know about what conversation I had on January 7th about this poll. Like, I don't remember what the question was, but it was just like I could not possibly tell you what state I was in, what month it was, or anything after stuff like this. And they're like, well, I, you should be able to answer that. No, I'm definitely not going to be able to answer that. <laughs> yeah. I, I Sorry. I talked to a lot of people and have a lot of meetings <laughs> right. and, and a lot of Zooms and conference calls. I don't right. recall. Uh, no. How is, I, I was up in DC earlier this week and uh, it is a giant clusterfuck. So are you up there today? I'm, I'm at home in Virginia, but I was in DC during the week and, it, and I can confirm it is a clusterfuck. Um, more so than usual, which is saying something. Um, mm. But uh, on the other hand, as I said, you know, one of the good parts about it is the U.S. House of Representatives is not currently spending us into bankruptcy or funding a war that they shouldn't be in. So <laughs> there is that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you you help congressional candidates get elected, but on a day to day mm -hmm. basis, you're much more involved on the Senate side, right? Correct. Correct. Right. And so I, I helped with, candidates uh, involved, but with Senator Paul uh, from from Kentucky and I help I advise him. Uh, I run his campaigns and then occasionally I help other candidates, usually House members like Congresswoman Mace, who we both help. And then I've had others off and on. So but um, yeah, I don't get too much into the weeds on the day to day of of how the House operates it's, uh, and, and what they're doing. And, and I thank God for that most days. So. So what's your position with Senator Paul's like senior advisor or something like that? Senior advisor for his uh, Senate office. And then um, a chief strategist for his political stuff. I run his campaigns. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Well, cool, man. So, you know, you've been doing this a long time, a lot longer mm -hmm. than me. I mean, I, I came up in politics hearing your name and you and I just kind of became buddies recently, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, especially got close working on this Mace campaign, but I'm sure yeah. you've got more stories than most to tell, man. Let, I mean, I, I want to hear like some of your favorites or at least one big favorite. Sure. I'm sure you got some fun shit to say. Yeah. You know, there's, there's always stories that stick out in your mind. I, there were probably a million on the presidential campaign, but I would say, um, kind of the same that I would say to to the regulators of that one. I don't remember half of the, or certainly not the details. What, one that always stuck out for me, and, and it, you may remember it, it's it's within your time in politics, I think, but you, but it's, it's Senator Paul's first campaign for office. It's um, 2010. The Tea Party wave, he's running, he's, he's doing well. He won a nomination. He wasn't supposed to win. The entire establishment, mm -hmm. all of D.C., Put in millions against him. He was supposed to lose. He beat their, kicked their ass by 24 points in a primary. Um, to their credit, they're helping him in the general, as they, as I always counsel people. You know, when when you beat the the guys that are in D.C. and they want to help you in the fall, let them, let them help you. So yeah. we're all working together. Okay. <laughs> we're all working together, and he's doing well. I mean, it's still a real race, but he's, I think, he's up uh, five or eight points at this point. And the most absurd story that I've still ever been involved with in politics comes out. And it is, there's a magazine, I don't know, it might have been Esquire or Vanity Fair, or GQ, I think it was GQ, puts out this, quote, expose about Senator Paul having, quote, kidnapped a woman in college. What? <laughs> oh, man. So this is this is the most awesome. I don't story. remember this story at all. I'm surprised. Okay. And I was around it's, in 2010. It, I mean, yeah. All right. And, and, and and he and, and some he's in college. Uh, some of his, I guess, college buddies have 
allegedly kidnapped this person, brought her to some river in some sort of elaborate college boy ritual, and told her she had to worship their god called Aqua Buddha. <laughs> so the story is out there for a little bit. The story is obviously like absurd and ridiculous, even in the the probably ten percent of it that had any kind of basis in reality. Uh, and they, but the 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 part that then comes into the the best story part of the story is his opponent decides that's a TV ad mm-hmm. and runs a TV ad saying that Senator Paul questioned. Uh, other people's religious faith and made people worship his false god, Aqua Buddha. The whole thing is literally word for word in an ad, paid ad on broadcast television. Oh, geez. That 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 what what kind of uh, what kind of person kidnaps a woman and makes them worship a false god and uh, mocks Christianity? And it was just we saw the ad and we're looking at it and we're like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like, like you know because at that point you're just you're asking yourself like is this just so absurd that like do we even respond to something so fucking crazy right so here's here that that's a very good launch there so uh, we're in the car i'm in the car with senator Putin, then dr paul still um the nrsc is calling because they're like beside themselves watching this ad and and i, I uh, you know, our our mutual friend chris lasavita is the political director at this point so he's the one. I, 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 he calls. I answer the phone. It's me and, and another advisor and Senator Paul and driver in the car. And all we hear is La Savita. What the fuck is this? <laughs> I, I was like, hey, I was like, oh, hey, Chris, uh, you're on speaker with Dr. Paul. Like, oh, hey, Dr. Paul, how's it going? <laughs> Dude, he, hey, is Chris, one of my favorite, <laughs> he is one of my favorite people in politics to work with, man. Uh, I love that man so much. Uh, like I've known him for 20 years. Uh, they brought him in as political director in that cycle, largely because Senator Paul and a bunch of others who I helped that year won in that Tea Party wave, Senator Lee, and a bunch of other people. And the people that have been running the NRSC during the primary in that cycle were against them all. Mm-hmm. Chris and I had known each other for years before I even, I wasn't in uh, Congress at this point. I was doing outside political work and we're both Virginia guys. And we'd known each other for years. They put him in there to work with us. That's literally why he came back into that job. And so, you know, we worked great through that whole fall and he wasn't mad. He was just being himself, you know, in that phone call. And, yeah. uh, and so, yeah, what, what you have to do is we then went, you know what? If you're going to take it seriously, so am I. So we wrote in a few minutes a, a counter ad about, you know, uh, uh, Senator Paul being a man of faith, and then, you know, basically what kind of what kind of man bears false witness against someone else like that? And it's Jack Conway, and it's just this whole backslap against him. A really good ad done by again our mutual friends uh, at the Strategy Group, uh, Rex Elsus and his team did a killer uh-huh. ad to, ju- to just pound the guy in the face for even doing this ad. Then Kelly Paul, who is awesome, does a press conference just denouncing Conway for doing this and just like crushes this guy. The guy ends up like losing six or seven points through his own ad and, <laughs> and for, for being a jackass, basically. <laughs> and it goes, it goes completely national. Like it's on every news broadcast. Chris Matthews on Hardball has Jack Conway on the air and Jack, I think thinks he's going on to talk about this wonderful thing he's got on Rand Paul and Matthews cuts his balls off on live TV for even running. Really? It. Yeah. He just like, like punches him just so right absurd. in the face. Yeah. 
and how how dare you what kind of gutter shit is it like he just like lays into him and um you know matthews was having none of it and not even the not even the left wanted any part of this and it was just yeah, really funny it's to so watch. silly so it's just shitty I'm sure- like it's just absolutely shitty to do so so I'm sure you didn't listen to this, but um, I had a previous episode on this podcast with Phil Bailey, who actually works for us now. And Phil, mm-hmm. I was running the South Carolina Senate caucus. He was running the Democratic caucus. And a very similar thing happened, but uh, not like an ocean god, um, like Aquaman, um, <laughs> but at a much smaller level at the state Senate level where um, the current majority leader, Shane Massey, was in a 40% BVAP district. It was a, the swingest of swing districts. We should have never won. We were going up for – it was a special election. So like a year and a half later, we had like the real election. And they ran an ad saying that Shane was against the Lord's Prayer. Like, okay. And like, yep. like, you know, and, and Shane's like a Southern Baptist as like Christian – perfect mm-hmm. like boy as like you could possibly be and then there's this right. tv ad that just kind of comes out of left field but it was so absurd right and you know even like black pastors that were friends with shane that wouldn't have come out before right were mm-hmm. like this is the most absurd thing that you could ever ever say and what it was doug was it was a um it was a poison pill amendment that was put in. I don't remember if you remember years ago when uh, the Ten Commandments, like putting the Ten Commandments in public buildings was like a, a mm-hmm. big movement. And remember, it was the justification was that it was a historical document, not a religious right. document. Right. Well, then a Democratic senator put up a poison pill that said, all right, well, we want to publish the Lord's Prayer too. Well, you everybody had to vote against it because obviously that would have made the bill unconstitutional. Right. So they used that bill. Next thing you know, Shane Massey's against the Lord's Prayer, and but it hugely backfired, and we ended up winning that race by like 60 votes. 60. Right. I mean, right. had, it, had it not for, been for them trying to overplay their hand, they probably could have beat us in that. Yeah, and I think that one of the, the, the lessons I, I would say, there's two things about about things, stories like those, like yours and mine, you never know what your opponent is going to say in an election. You never know what you're going to be facing. We all make our plans at the beginning of a campaign, and we all have our little weekly timelines, what we're going to talk about, and we love those, and and, and some of us like them more than others. And it's, they're just usually somewhere in the campaign, it's going to get set on fire by you or by them. Somebody's going to set on fire. But the, second, the, the bigger thing to me is, yeah, if somebody's spending money, even if they're as absurd, yes, you answer them. Even yeah. if it's just to smack him in the face for doing it, you know, you don't have to defend yourself, but you absolutely take a baseball bat to the guy once he does that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it, it's these, these, some of these operatives, you know, trying to be too cute by half, they, they, they think they have this thing and, you know, that's the silver bullet and they don't just think it through and like, will a normal person actually believe right. this? Right. <laughs> Right. Like, and and, and campaign focus be... groups or things like, you know, you're not going to do a lot of things that big campaigns do it, even at a congressional level, but certainly on a state level. Just show it to five of your friends who don't pay attention to politics or something. Do something. Yeah. So somebody will call your bullshit about that. You live on Twitter and you live only talking to other people who do this for a living. If that's the case, if you get if you do this for a living and you watch Fox News all day and you and you you know, only talk to other people in politics and you're on Twitter all day. You have absolutely no idea what a real voter is going to think is absurd. 
Yeah, and that's always been my problem with DC consultants, Doug. Yeah. And, and I know you don't live in the bubble in DC, and you're outside mm-hmm. of it. But you right. know, these guys just live in it so much that they forget right. what normal people think. Which is why I never wanted to move to DC, and I want to stay down here in Charleston so that I could, you know, keep the razor sharp. Yeah, and, and you're, you're right. right they live in that Twitter echo chamber. Chamber. They're hanging out the Capitol Hill Club every night, and that Bull Feathers every night, and yeah. Fox News and is always <laughs> on. Right. And they completely lose touch. You're right. Like, even if you just send it to your five of your buddies that only partly pay attention to politics, right? You know, that's that's clutch, man. Like a lot of yeah. times for me, it's my workout group. I'll just go and ask those guys, you know, five o'clock in the morning, like, hey, do you see this? And just get their read on it. I mean, like when Donald, you know, when we you know, you were doing Rand Paul for president, I was on Marco uh for president, and you know, it really started freaking me the hell out when like all these workout people that I, all these, you know, redneck boys that I, I work out with started talking about Donald Trump mm-hmm. and I would have never, ever expected it, but I started understanding because those guys I was able to, but if That's you're right. in the DC bubble, you, you think Donald Trump has had no chance in hell. Every, nobody in DC saw him coming. They all thought he was a joke. And that clearly showed that they didn't understand, you know, uh, both presidential politics uh, there's always an outsider, right? They may not win, but there's always somebody that catches some, some, uh, you know, some jet fuel and 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 launches into the the conversation. But the bigger thing is somebody like him that does not speak the language of every other politician um, is always gonna and, and who has their own money and who can command. Yeah, you know, the guy's been a celebrity for thirty years. Of course, the cable networks were going to cover him nonstop. They covered yeah. him nonstop, whatever he did. I, I grew up in New York. I grew up watching Donald Trump on television. Mm-hmm. It, it was just that was just you know it, it, he was he was always a celebrity he was always a larger than life presence to think he'd come in and sit at five percent in a presidential race was absurd yeah i mean i was to be honest with you in the beginning of it i was naive and it was also because you know i was working for marco so i wanted to also maybe pretend yeah. it wasn't happening to sure. a certain degree yeah then, well, that's why know, working for Rand, we had to figure we had to decide were we going to ignore it or were we going to try to like just let other people fight or, you know, take the puncher shot at it. I don't know if you remember the first debate, but like literally the first minute of the first debate, Rand just turned and punched him in the mouth with his opening yeah. statement. And like, mm-hmm. it, it, it didn't work and it was unlikely to work, but it was more likely to work yeah. than just sitting back and, and watching him hits. win. Yeah. 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 It's like whenever he kept making fun of Marco, little Marco, and then right. Marco right. cracked that joke in a debate about his shoe size or his dick size or something. <laughs> right. and it just didn't work. It just didn't no. work. Then everybody just making fun of Marco. And right. Marco actually ended up apologizing for it. Like he's been taking yeah. all these hits. Donald Trump was insulting everybody. And then Marco had to turn around and apologize to Donald Trump. I mean, it's the most laughable thing. I remember but one um, time so we're, it, we're, we're walking into the, so after Trump's elected, we go in and, and I'm with Rand and we're going in to see Trump and he's got a couple other senators in there that are walking out and they look at, and they're saying, Oh, he, he says to the other senators, you know, I want you to know something. When I was running for president, only one guy had the balls to punch me from the beginning. It was Rand. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Um, 2010, so we got elected in 2010. We got DeMint elected in 2004. And I think DeMint kind of, I don't want to give him full credit for starting that trend, but you know, he was really one of the first uh, to use social media in the Senate for the conservative side, he really helped build that Tea Party Absolutely. movement. That then, in 2010, uh, Paul came in, Marco came in mm-hmm. that year, Mike Lee. So you had um, 
I think you had three to four to five senators that you don't want to Ron put Johnson it all like been in they got elected. Right? Yeah, yeah. You don't want to say they got elected because of Jim Dement, but I think Jim Dement started something that definitely helped propel those guys there. Oh, in I think that's right. I think there there are the, there's there's not much of a Tea Party without two people, and that's Jim Dement and Ron Paul. And from yeah. from Ron's presidential campaign in 2008, and the people that came out of that, and Jim in the Senate, and then Senate Conservatives Fund, and if you take those kind of two concurrent movements at the same time, that's the Tea Party. Yeah, and that's well, that's where we are. Why I love Rand Paul so much, and uh, I, I know you got to go in a second, but the reason I love Rand Paul is everybody expected to him to be a, a replication of or a duplication of Ron Paul. Right. And what I love about Rand is he is he has all the the things I love about Ron Paul, but is a little more to my more mainstream conservative. He's not so far libertarian, but fits a more Republican mold that makes when I look at all the U.S. senators, he's the one that I think ideologically I'm the most aligned with. Where I never felt mm-hmm. that about Ron Paul. So I would say to that, it's it's actually probably almost as much a personality thing than it is an ideological one. Um, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe that's it. But uh, there's some, there's a little bit, just a touch of the ideological, but more of a stylistic and, and personality difference. They're, they're not just, as most fathers and sons, he, he in, inherited a lot, but he's not his father. <laughs> well, especially during COVID, I would have put a Rand Paul tattoo on my freaking chest i was so i, was, I mean i was che- i he was, was so he was the Rand only Paul one for ch- yeah i know i know and the fact that he actually had you, you know the fact that he is a doctor um yeah. eye doctor right but like the fact that he, he has a medical background at least he can right. speak to this he, intelligently he's an md his his uh one of his training before he became an, a surgeon you know you all do general surgery before you specialize yeah, yeah. but before that he did immunology actually and but oh, just know you know that. as a as a as a very young doctor just you know they all have different rotations they do but also you know i cannot tell you how much time i've spent talking about the science and the medicine of this with him and with every expert he could find over the last couple of years uh yeah. you know, we went really deep on this stuff we brought in people contrarians perhaps but people with you know extensive extensive medical research and academic backgrounds to talk about this mm-hmm. to to make sure that you know the the view that we were putting forward that he was putting forward was legitimately scientifically based and not just a reaction to somebody like Fauci yeah the government health industry basically completely shit the bed over the last two years i mean oh god from, yeah. from oh. fda cdc fauci every public health institution either was incompetent or lied or both in the last couple of years. And I don't think, I don't see how you come to any other conclusion at this point. I I don't either, man. And, you know, I was very early on in saying this, but, you know, uh, speaking of, you know, Dement's election, uh, two weeks before uh, Dement was elected, I was working on the campaign. My mother died uh, very unexpectedly of an opioid overdose. And for 15 years, I feel like I've been like singularly like the only person on the internet screaming about pharmaceutical companies and, mm-hmm. and, and the dangers that, you know, this, this epidemic that they created. So then when you have something like COVID come around and, you know, immediately start talking about vaccinations, I immediately get my back up and start thinking, well, if the pharmaceutical companies are saying X, then Y is probably actually right. The or at least we should and, question and, if X is okay. That's for sure. We should at least ask questions. And I guess my point is yeah. to your point about the, me- the medical industry shitting the bed, it's going to continue to shit the bed as long as they're just taking their cues directly from the pharmaceutical company 
uh, and the, I'm sorry, the pharmaceutical industry that's making so much money off of this. Well, and it's largely a you just got to follow the money. Uh, you know, it is. These, I mean, they, they come in and out of government, whether it's the FDA and CDC, NIH. They come in and out of the healthcare companies, the pharmaceutical companies, and the government. And it's the same thing at the Pentagon, honestly. Uh, you know, the, the 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 military and the healthcare industries are just revolving doors of people coming in and out that give us bad spending and bad results in 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 procurement and things like this. You know, and uh -huh. if you know, it, that's the biggest reform we could probably come up with is stopping that revolving door somehow. Well, I just love that. Like Rand Paul is one of the only people talking about it. I mean, and and it's yeah. like. He ha he's not letting people forget to. He's still talking about it. Nope. And I just fear that, you know, we shut down the world and then everybody's mm -hmm. just going to go back to normal and pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. And I, I feel like Rand Paul's one of the few people that still are just like beating the drum. Like, do you guys, did you forget recent history? This just, this just right. happened. We're still, I mean, it's, it's still, we don't know the outcome of all of it yet between the recession no. and some of the medical problems. We don't know the outcome yet. No. Well, someone's got to be asking questions and, and demanding some accountability, brother. So, yep. man, I appreciate your time. And more than that, I appreciate your friendship. And you it's too. Been awesome Anytime. getting closer to you and, and working with you, man. Absolutely. You as well, Wesley. Enjoy. All right, man. Thanks, brother. Have a good one. Bye-bye.